You know, in many ways, when we want to invite friends and loved ones, especially those who don't know the Lord, to come for a service like Easter service, it really is an invitation for anyone who needs to know whether God is real or not, or has a need that only God can fill, to come and receive from God. It's nothing more than that. And I just wonder whether we can just have a word of prayer right now and lift up anyone that God has brought up in your heart, who you love and you care for, who has a need. Primarily, of course, a need to know God and to be in relationship with Him. But some of us, we have specific needs, like a sickness, like a bankruptcy, or a financial need, or a loss, or a sorrow, or a broken place. You know, Jesus is here, and He has paid every price possible. There's nothing more that needs to be done from His side for us and our loved ones to experience His, uh, his redemption and His salvation. So why don't we just lift up our, those who are in our hearts, and we will pray for them. Lord, we thank you that not only have you made provision for us on Easter, but every day to experience your utter satisfaction, utter fulfillment of your promises to us, that we can have life and more abundantly. We thank you that no matter what our history has been, you have paid the price for everything that's needed. That you can change us and change situations and change our lives so that they are unrecognizable anymore. Thank you, Lord. We pray for your love and your grace, your power to be released on Easter Sunday. And in many ways, we know we don't even need to pray for it because it's already been done. And so we welcome you, Lord. We lift before you loved ones and friends that we so desire to experience your love. And we ask you that even now, you will do a work to supernaturally draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Today really is Palm Sunday. I got it wrong last week. It was not embarrassing, actually. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's great. Next Sunday, we can celebrate Palm Sunday more. <laughs> and thank you for bringing the palms for us. That was a lot of fun. Uh, Cindy was telling me, you, you better get one of those. You need it. <laughs> and I'm glad for that. Whoever brought these palms for Palm Sunday, I want to thank you for that. Amen. Bill, thank you, Bill. All right, turn with me then to Mark chapter 11. I'd like to talk about something that happened on this particular incident at this particular time that is life-changing. Because Palm Sunday is more than palms. By the way, you know the palms actually symbolize the peace of God, right? The peace of God that was being welcomed. And so the peace or the shalom of God means more than just a, a subjective feeling of quietness. It really has to do with the, the, the well-being of God, yeah? the will of God, the kingdom of God, the power of God, the victory of God, the saving power of God, 
the power of God to put His will, His good purposes of, 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 for us, for that abundant life upon us. And so when we wave these before God, we are saying, Hosanna, we are saying, let it happen to me. It's for me, for our land, and it's for our, our nation. Turn with me to Mark chapter 11 then, and we'll read it from verse 1. Watch the time. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he, Jesus, sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will, set, he will send it back here. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside on the, in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing, untying the coat? <laughs> they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. That's a sign and a wonder there. And they brought the coat to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. You know, in many ways, putting the coats on the donkey is a really, really a picture of our theme you will be clothed with power from on high because we are the little donkey. We're not anything special. We're just little donkeys, right? It's a coat, not even a, an, an adult donkey. It's a coat. It's actually a little donkey. Not that smart, not that talented, not that impressive. And he clothes us with himself, amen, with his power. Um. And many spread their coats, verse 8, verse eight, on the road, in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Verse 9, those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for, for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. It's almost as if Jesus was coming into the city. Actually, not almost. It was actually, actually the case that he was coming and he was examining the city. He was scanning the city and he was judging what was going on. Yeah? Well, it was, it was, he was examining the spiritual life of the city, so to speak. On the next day, when they left Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up withered from the roots up. 
Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look at the fig tree which you curse has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Or a better translation would be, Have faith of God. Yeah? Have faith of God. Literally would be, Have faith of God. Some people say, Have the faith of God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Okay, amen. Let's stop, stop here for a bit. So what we have here is a very uh, familiar scene uh, in history of Israel because this kind of idea of the Messiah coming into the city of Jerusalem was uh, one of the messianic psalm, uh, signs that the kingdom of God is coming. The Jews had many messianic expectations and they were various and many as well. But one of the messianic expectations is that the the Messiah will bring the kingdom of God, throw off the power of the oppressors of the Romans or the Greeks or whatever it is, and establish his kingdom. And many uh, would-be messiahs came, and they would come on white horses and powerful war horses um, because there was an expectation that the Messiah would someone come and, uh, and, and, and a great war would take place, and the Romans will be completely defeated, and they will be completely routed, and the kingdom of God will then come and the, the law of the Lord would come from the mountain of, of, of Zion, and, uh, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and the nations would come up the mountain and listen to Torah. Okay, so there was many expectations that were around that, that area. Now, Ze Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, had one of those expectations that were considered a, a, a real expectations for Messiahs. And Zechariah 9, verse 9, speaks about the fact that the Messiah would come humble and lowly and seated on, on, a, on a colt, a donkey and a colt. Actually, it was not a donkey and a colt, but it was a donkey and the donkey was a colt. Right? That's, it's kind of a parallelism. So the idea was also there, out there. Now, there were many expectations that they had that people had of Jesus, that he would come and set, set them free from the Romans. But he came not on a white horse, not a white steed war horse, but he came on the donkey. Yeah? He come, came on a donkey. And many people have said, oh man, why do you have to do that? Now Solomon, remember when Solomon was, was, uh, was crowned, he came in humble as well, riding on a donkey to take his crown. Amen? Do you remember that? There are several parts of uh, scriptures that talk about coming, the Messiah coming in this way. The thing about it is this. When Jesus did that, immediately, a lot of people were disappointed. A lot of people were like, oh no, I wish you came on a steed. That you look more impressive. Look, you've got this crowd, this multitude. They're saying, Hosanna, come. Save us from the Romans. Save us from oppression. Save us from our financial ruin. Save us from our, our decayed and decrepit situation. Take, save us from all this. 
And the, the hope was that multitudes and multitudes will be justified in their expectation that Jesus would come. But he came in this way. And I want to talk a little bit about that because there is a way in which in order for God to establish his kingdom in our lives, he brings a death to our own expectations. If that does not happen, we will always yoke or, or fix or attach our own natural expectations to his nature and we will get something that's less. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about what Palm Sunday was about. Palm Sunday, I would put it to you, is the way in which God prepared the city and the nation and actually the world for his resurrection. He was preparing the city for something great that was happening. And for him to do that, he had to come in and he had to judge the city and judge people's expectations. Because if that judgment did not happen, they would have impure expectations and impure ways of receiving the Messiah, receiving God. God was wanting to do something much bigger than what the, the Jews were expecting. And here he was coming in on a, on a, on a completely disappointing steed, a completely disappointing vehicle. It was just completely gone. Any political expectations that they had of him were completely destroyed. Can you imagine? The whole crowd, there are all kinds of pe people of different political expectations and, and social, social uh, class and all that. And they were actually expecting, each one expecting a different kind of thing from Jesus. Each one of them had a different agenda. And Jesus comes in and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. What? What about this? Why don't you fix this? Why don't you fix that? Fix or fix this other social problem that's there. Why don't you do that? You're the Messiah. You're supposed to do this. You're paid to do this, right? And Jesus just comes in and he says, look, I am not of this world. And in order for you to understand me, in order for you to know me, you cannot attach me to anything that you have in terms of your own expectation. You can never know God if you know him in relation to something else first. You have to know him in and of himself. If you know him in and of himself, then your expectations and, your, and you, you can begin to link it with other things as well in this world. But if you start with linking Jesus with any kind of social, political, emotional, psychological expectations, you are going to never know God in and of himself. He is holy. He is other. He is not of, your, of you. He is not of your expectations, no, how, no matter how good they are. And the first thing that Jesus does is that when he comes into the city, he cleans the temple, he cleans the city of all the stuff that is, that is remnant of all their own historical expectations of him. And the first thing that we notice you're going to find is this. When Jesus begins to prepare us for his coming, for his presence and for his blessings, he puts to death all our own agendas for him. Or else you can never know him for who he is. You'll always know him as Jesus the some, in relation to my own thing that I want him to be. And that is part of why sometimes Christians can never get their Christian life going. They can never en enter into knowing God. They can only know God from their head because God is always seen in relation to something that they need or to something that they want or something that they hope would be 
or something, some, something that they projected upon the Jesus. And so what we have here is Jesus coming in and the first thing he does is that he blows away their expectations of him. You can never know him unless you let him do that. No matter what you think is good, no matter what good you have projected onto him, you've got to let him blow it away. Now, it gets better, okay? You're thinking, is it better or worse? It gets better, okay. I'd like to especially focus on one incident that I felt the Lord um, put his finger on, and that has to do with the cursing of the tree. The tree, that seems to be a little bit of a problematic thing, don't you think? How many of you, when I felt that, when I read that, you were thinking, what? Jesus got, got into a bad mood, huh? I thought he, he didn't sin. I mean, that, just, that seemed so small, so peevish of him. Come on, Jesus, you're, you're better than that. Okay, let's have a look at this. On the next day, verse 12, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. For figs. It's not the tree's fault. It's just, it's not seasonal. What the? What, what, why do you curse the poor tree? And then he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening and they were wondering what was going on. Later, as they come, came back the next day, verse 20, as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Wow. Okay, that's powerful. Not sure whether it's moral or not, but it's powerful. They saw the tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look at the fig tree which you cursed. It has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. And I can imagine the disciple says, I have faith in God, but I'm not sure whether I have faith in you now. After you've done that. <laughs> Don't you think so? You see, the thing about it is this. The fig tree was always a symbol of Israel. Yeah, It's always a symbol of, of, of Israel. And Jesus never functioned out of his flesh. He always functioned out of his spirit. We function a lot by our flesh. Our emotions, they're hungry, we want to eat. You know, somebody irritates us, we get irritable, right? We function out of our flesh. Our actions, our words come out of this flesh. Whereas Jesus, it doesn't come from that, it comes from his spirit. His flesh may not know all that's going on, but his spirit is where it, it, it originates from. So what we have is a sign. It has a miracle that came from God. So here's the thing. I would put it to you that when Jesus saw the fig tree, he saw the condition of the nation. He was looking at the condition of the nation. He had gone into the temple and he looked, and it says he looked at everything. And he is looking and judging the condition, the spiritual condition of the nation. And what he did in the temple, he was doing with the fig tree. He cleansed the temple and kicked out all the merchandisers all the religion that has to do with God for my own thing, God for my own profit, 
for God for my own self-actualization. God for this. God for that. God as part of the surrounding constellation in which I am the center of everything. Jesus was actually cleansing the temple and, 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 and the Jewish religion of that kind of element that is in there. That's impure, that's in unholy. Now he's preparing the nation for the resurrection. The resurrection will be the most life-changing, the most epochal event ever in the history of humankind. Everything changed from the resurrection of Jesus. He was preparing for, for that. And what he does is that he comes, like he comes to each of us, he comes to the church, and he judges the fig tree. And he says, you will never be able to function in the supernatural unless you die. Because there's an infinite qualitative difference between my life and the life that you can produce out of your own fig tree. And so what Jesus was basically saying is the fig tree must die. Because all the fig tree can do is produce leaves. The fig tree could only function in the natural. It can only function sort of in the flesh, so to speak. And what Jesus was basically saying is this, in order for us to have a resurrection, there must be a death first. There must be a death first. And so what Jesus does is that he begins to, to show this. Now, it offends us, doesn't it? It offends us when we say, it's not the tree's fault. And truly, it really isn't really the tree's fault. The tree only will produce fruit in season. But right now, the tree only produces leaves. And what Jesus was saying is this, I see no fruit. The fruit that you have is only natural fruit, just natural leaves. I want to take you to another level. It is infinitely greater than that. So infinitely greater than that, that you will be offended by the way I judge what, what is natural. In order for the resurrection life of God, the supernatural life of God, to become ours, the natural must die. He must be dead from the roots up. I think what Jesus saw was that the nation of Israel had tried in their best efforts in the flesh to live by the law of God, to live according to the holiness of God, and failed. They feel, failed from the roots up. Every effort to obey the law and to please God failed from the roots up. And what God was saying is this, the only way in which you can experience true righteousness, true holiness, and true life of God, and true joy, is if that old life dies. And that's why He went to die for us. It would take the death of the Son of God for that to happen. Such was the difference, the infinite difference between the, the, life, the qualitative life of God and the qualitative life that we have. There's an infinite qualitative difference between the Christian life and me trying to live the Christian life in my flesh. There's an infinite qualitative difference. I cannot reach it. I can't do it. No matter how much I try, from the roots up, my, my motives are impure. Any kind of talk about me being pure or being righteous from the roots up in of myself is complete heresy. 
It's not. There's nothing good in me, the psalmist says. Amen? And what Jesus had to do is to come, before you have a resurrection, i got to curse that life for you because from the roots up, you have the body of sin. You have sin in you. And you can never make me up to the standard. You will constantly be plagued by the, the, the leafy sinfulness of you. You can try, you can try to be righteous, you can be, try to hold, be holy, you can try to live the life of God, but you will always produce things that don't have real supernatural fruit. This is the condition of the church today. Because many of us will actually try to emulate Christ's life. And a lot of times we, tr- we try to say, I'm a Christian because I'm a follower of Christ. I want to follow His example. And in much of the church, I just follow Jesus' example. But I can't. I can't do it. From the roots up, I can't. I'm like that fig tree. I, I can only be what I am. And what Jesus begins to do is this. He says, I've got to curse it. Because when I curse it, I bring to death all your human efforts. What you need is not an improvement or a patch-up or a healing kind of, kind of thing to sort of heal what is actually essentially completely corrupted. You can't patch it. You have to kill it. The only way in which resurrection life, the life of God that transcends and that escapes the captivity of our own human life is for God to actually live His life through us. And that is why as Jesus went to the cross, what he did is he took the death for us. He took upon himself our death. He took himself upon himself the curse. There is in medieval literature as well as uh, in the Old Testament the idea that the tree is the cross. The tree is the cross. And the tree became that was 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 the fig tree became the cross that Christ was cursed upon. That's why he took the crown of thorns upon himself. That's the curse. Curse was the ground, the curse upon Adam and Eve. He took it upon himself so that we will not have to bear that curse. But we have this situation in which Jesus was and it's offensive, right? Because he's saying, what I have for you is so infinitely greater that you cannot hold on to that stuff. The no matter how much you try to improve the, 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 the fig tree, no, no matter how you try, you try to put uh, chemicals on the, on, onto the ground, upon the roots, it will not be enough. You have to destroy it. Think about it. So because of that, I want to look into this a little bit more because I wonder whether there are some of us who are here who are saying, I try my best to live the Christian life. Try my best to be holy. I try my best to forgive. I try my best to get rid of bitterness and hurt. I try my best to overcome habits and bondages and all that. I can't. And because of that, when I try to be a good Christian, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. There's something in me that just does not allow me to do that. I know it's good. I know I should be righteous. I know I should be holy. I know I should be having more of the abundant life. I know I should be having the, the joy of the Lord. But I can't in and of myself. I've lived long enough to know that no matter how much I try to muster up the righteousness and the joy, I don't have it. Just like there's a huge difference 
between a fig tree that is merely having leaves and a fig tree that has fruit. You can't eat the leaves. Sorry. The leaves are just food. It's not fruit. And what God wants to do is to put fruit in us. Give us the fruit of supernatural healing, deliverance, righteousness, joy, peace, and the Holy Ghost. Amen? But can you see how, actually, on Palm Sunday, what we rejoice in is the fact that Jesus came in. And the only way in which we can be cured is to be brought to a point in which from the roots up, our old life is cursed, it's broken, it's killed. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what the cross is all about. So that foreshadowed the cross. The cross would be the, the, the fig tree or the tree upon which Jesus would die. The cross would be Jesus' death so that we can be filled with new life. Amen? So far from it being kind of an act of peevishness, peevishness and irritability from Jesus, what he was saying is this. There's something more important here that's going on. Okay, let's go to verse 20. They were passing by in the morning, and they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you have cursed has withered. And Jesus gives him a very interesting answer, verse 22. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. That's my translation, NASB. I think many translations would have faith in God. But if you literally translate it, it's actually more like, Have faith of God. Have faith not in God, but faith of God. But the in is important because of the fact that the only way in which you can have the faith of God God's kind of faith, the kind of faith that moves mountains, is to be in God. Amen? So it's, it's one of those translating dilemmas that translators always have. They have to put it on the page so that it doesn't have too many, too many words on there. Or else there will be a whole paragraph of translation, right? And so they have to choose whether they'll say, have the faith of God or have faith in God. Some, translation, some translations would, say, would, would, would translate it more literally. I want to say what God is getting at here is He's saying, have the faith of God. That means a different kind of faith. The faith that comes from, comes from heaven. The faith that you cannot muster up for yourself. Because if you do that, if you have that faith, miracles will happen in your life. You won't just be leaves and leaves and leaves and leaves, all thought, 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 thought. You will have Actual things of God happening. Real things. And what I mean by real things is real things from heaven. Not, not things that we try to, to kind of make from the human side of things. I mean real things from heaven. Real fruit that comes. Not just leaves. Leaves and words and all that are good. But they don't come anywhere close to the acts and the works of God. God wants to put that in us. God wants to put His righteousness, His, His miracles, His healing, His power in us. Do you know that? If it's not, then it's not really that worth it, is it? You're very quiet. <laughs> the offense of the fig tree is the fact that God wants so much more for us 
than what we are prepared to glory in. He is so much, has so much for us that it offends us and it humbles us when we think we are that great or that we are that holy or that we are that righteous or that, that Christian. But God says say this, there's nothing. And the sooner you, don't, you, you, you get rid of any kind of expectations that the Christian life is just something that can be lived in the thought of your mind and, on, and, and, and the strength of your own flesh, you, the better. You've got to get rid of that. Because what is worst is to lower what God has for you into something that you can do for yourself. That is the worst thing. And what Paul says is, you're the most to be pitied. It's not worth it. The offense has to do with the fact that, you know, it's such an affront. That is that no matter how good our talents are, our gifts are, and how self-affirming we can be, it is not even close to what God has for us. We can sometimes get offended by someone who wants, wants so much for us that they are not interested with what we have. Have you been with, with somebody like that? I remember once talking to a, a, an older Australian guy who came to preach in my church. And he... He, he began to ask me some questions. I was very young at that time. And uh, he says, he asked me, what do you go for when you are preaching evangelistic messages? So I was going to give him a good answer. Go for repentance. That's what I want. Repentance. And I thought he was going to be impressed. He said, yeah, that's okay. You know what you know what you want? You want the presence of God. In the presence of God there, He does more than all your teaching and your preaching. It took me aback. I was twenty two years old when he told me that. But when he said that, that to me, I was slightly offended because he was so not impressed by me. But it changed my life. Because it helped me to see that what ministry must happen has, must happen from God doing the ministry, not me. And what I want to crave for is the presence of God because He does so much more than the, the puny words that I had. Sometimes we got offended because God has so much more for us. When He begins to judge the things that we think we should be affirmed about, and God says, look, if you keep on playing that game and riding on that donkey, you're not going to go that far. You want to allow yourself to put aside all the things that make you think that you you are somebody and you've got to let me humble you. And when I humble you, I will bring to death everything that has been the basis of your goodness right now. Your great conscience. All that is not even enough. Don't even think that your repentance will be enough. Don't even think that your repentance is enough for you to be righteous and vindicated before God. Even that is not enough. No repentance will do it. Only the blood of Jesus. 
And what God wanted to do was to do something like that for me. Amen? So, let's look at that. And then he says, have the faith of God. What he was saying is this, if you have God's faith, you will do miracles. Correct? So you have to ask the question, then why don't we see miracles? Is it because we have our own faith? But God is, Jesus is saying, have the faith of God. That means the faith that comes from God. It means that we have to say, we actually don't have faith. Or our faith is not enough. Just like the man in John chapter 9 who brought his son to Jesus and uh, asked the disciples to cast out demons from him. Because the demons would cast him into the fire and all that. The, 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 the disciples couldn't do it. And Jesus said to him, all things can happen. All can be done if you believe. And suddenly the man realized, if it's a matter of belief, I don't have it. He wanted to have it, but he didn't have it. So he says what? I believe. Help my unbelief. He understood that what he needed was not this mustered up faith that he can try to push up to the nth degree. No, that's not even enough. It would never cut it. He will need something from God. He will need his own faith to be cursed from the roots up. He will need his own righteousness, his own ability to think himself into faith to be completely destroyed. He has to experience that death because from the roots, that kind of human faith had to be killed. Only what comes from God. So what, what, what Jesus was basically saying is this. If you have the faith that comes from God, even in another place, it says, as small as a mustard seed, that can grow to something that could actually move mountains. You can see miracles. And the difference between you and someone else is that someone else is studying and studying and studying, and all they get is leaves. Can't eat that. But when the fruit of God comes, even if it's just one, one particle, it's qualitatively infinitely greater. Amen. What we want is the faith of God. Not our own faith. It's not enough. If you think that it's, you have to ha somehow muster up enough faith to believe, to, be, to believe you can please God, forget it. It's, you're never going to make it. No matter how much you grow, you could be a thousand years and it still will not be enough because it's infinitely not enough. Don't get offended by it. Praise God. What Jesus came to do is to give us the faith of Jesus. When you have the faith of Jesus, miracles will start happening. You will hear from God. It will not be just some kind of fuzzy kind of thing or, not, or some imaginative thing that you can kind of creatively put up in your mind and, and make it really poetically biblical and all that. No, it's not that. It doesn't come from that place. It comes from God. Now, I came to a point where when I was a pastor, I needed to have that kind of thing happen. I needed real things to happen in my congregation because my congregation was suffering most of them had come from very, very bad backgrounds, completely broken. 
I needed something that was not just words. I needed something that was, 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 was much more substantial for them. I need real things that happen in their lives. You know what I mean? Not the comfort of me. Not the gifts of me. Not the, not the, 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 the personality of me. That's not enough. It just doesn't cut it. I needed the faith of God. And I realized that I didn't have it. I didn't have it. I was a pastor, and now I have a small congregation, and I didn't have it. And no matter how much I stretched the faith that I had, it just wouldn't, just wouldn't. Just not enough. And it is to this situation that Jesus comes in on the day of, uh, um, on Palm Sunday. And so he says, have the faith of God. I read to you a, uh, a little bit from C.S. Lewis. Hopefully it's, it'll be helpful again. It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be a jolly sight harder for a bird to learn to try to fly while remaining an egg. While the bird is an egg, he thinks everything is about eggness. Right? We are like eggs at present, and you cannot go on indefinitely being just an ordinary, decent egg. You must hatch or go bad. You can take the egg and throw it and say, look, it's flying, but it's not. It is not. I'm sorry. It may look like it's flying. And sometimes I think of the Christian life as like just throwing, throwing eggs. Like, See, flying, flying. Oops, it landed. Actually, it meant to land. No. What, Jesus, what C.S. Lewis is saying is that flying is a wholly different ontology. It's a whole different kind of being, state of being, than being an egg. And what we want to know is this. How can we transition from being an egg to being a bird? It's completely different, right? Don't get offended if you feel like I'm saying you're an egg. I'm not saying that. But God has, one, has a hatching for all of us to do. And there's hatching for us. Today something hatched. Don't you think? Something, something hatched today. Because some people decided we're going to not be surrounded by the safe thing. We're going to believe that what Jesus said is really true. And we're going to step out of it and we're going to hatch. No more throwing eggs all around. Oh, see how that's flying? No more of that. We want to actually hatch. Amen? We want to hatch this Easter. And what Jesus is talking about in resurrection is hatching so that we can be able to fly on our own power or the power of God. Amen? Oh, amen. When the faith of God comes, okay, God puts a seed in us. God puts a revelation inside our hearts. And it changes our very being. You know, in Psalm 16, it says, you know, uh, my, my, my very being will rest in hope. And it is until that point, there is no faith. There's only trying to be faithful to God. So what do I do? The man who's, who's said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, gives us a clue. John chapter 9. 
he recognized that faith had not come yet. But he can believe as best as he can. He can say, okay, I open myself to you. I got all these doubts. My heart is riddled with doubts. Help me. Help me. Help me. I'll just move towards you. I can't help the way my heart is. I just can't believe. I've got too much disappointment. I have too much trauma. I have too much fear in me. I can't believe. But I'm open to you. You can help me in my, whole, in, my, in my hopelessness. Help me. Put faith inside me. You cannot fix your own problem by not turning to Jesus. Jesus has to be the one. And you may be disappointed when I say, well, the first thing you do is tell him you need this. Tell him. You cannot, relate, you cannot receive any change without relating to him. You have to relate to Him. You can't try to fix it and so that you have faith and then you can come to Him, see God, I have faith. No, you have to tell Him. And telling Him seems so lame. It's like there's no assurance. But you have to tell Him. Amen? You have to be in relationship with Him. And you say, Lord, here I am with all my holes, all my doubts and all that. I, I come to you and I don't have that faith yet. I don't have that. But I believe. That means I'm open to you. I'm committed to you. Amen? So we can come to Him with all our doubts, but we are saying, I'm committed to you. I know that it has to be true. I just don't feel it. I don't have it in me. It's not solid in me yet. Help my son to be, to be healed. Deliver my son. Help me, help me. I would say that is the first step. And that step tells us that you can never receive anything from God without being in relationship with Him. It has to be to God. You cannot be to yourself or to this problem that you're fixing, hoping that God will help you to fix this thing with, and with your back at God. No, you have to be before God all the time. There is no, there's no, no thing you can do to control God. You can't press a button or use a formula to make sure God drops faith in you. You can only say, Lord, have mercy. We don't like that, right? We like methods that have like they're proven to work. I press this, I press this, I press this, I read this, I confess this, and I pray this, and I say amen to this and all that, and it'll work. We can do these things and with our backs towards Jesus. We're just doing a spiritual thing, but with our backs towards Jesus. What John chapter 9 was saying is this you can't do that. You have to look at him. You have to you have to look to him. And you have to be at His mercy. And if you are willing to be, be in this place, then when mercy comes, you will know it's because He loves you. Not because you did the right thing. You may be feel that you are assured that, that if I do this spiritual technology, it's going to work. But you will never know whether He loves you. But if you come before Him and says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, help me. I don't, I'm not worthy of any of this. And when He drops faith in your heart, then you know it's because He loves you. So many of today's healings that were taking place are not just healings of a particular thing. It is because of the fact that what He does in your knee or your abdomen or your chest is part of His wanting to love you as a whole. Not just heal that spot. Amen? So He, he opened, up, opened up to Him. And the second thing that I wanted to, to say is this, when God says, have the faith of God, we are waiting upon Him to drop a seed. Because if the seed just drops in, 
things will change on the inside of us. If they haven't changed, still wait. Still wait. Not try to master up faith. No, just wait for him. Psalm 16, Psalm 16 and Psalm 86 says, when I wait upon him, I cry to him all day. And uh, when that happens, he will put gladness in my heart. Suddenly my heart that used to be depressed will experience for no foreseeable reason. Gladness. Suddenly it happened. Have you ever experienced that? It's like you're down in the dumps. You cry out to God. You're waiting upon Him. Praying for no reason at all. Something drops into your heart. Just drops into there. And suddenly, it's different. It may come in the form of a word. Suddenly, somebody, some, the Lord just puts a word in your, in, your, in your head. Or something just turns. When it turns, because it's so different from how you felt before, you can be sure that's from God. That is the only thing that makes me un- understand how these disciples who were completely uh, dis- despondent and had seen the death of the Lord Jesus and were scared even of a small girl. Remember, Peter, Peter was scared of a, a young girl. Could be turned into people who were so bold that they were not afraid of being crucified themselves. How could that actually happen? The faith that they could not muster up for themselves could not kind of, kind of be, increase incrementally until it became high-powered. High they couldn't do that. Something dropped into them. It's the Holy Spirit and His faith that came upon them. Amen? I believe that God wants to transform the church from being just a leafy church. Everything in the head, everything in the emotions, everything in the psychology, into something in which something breaks. Not from within, into within, from outside, from God, into us, and deposits His Spirit inside us. Amen? That is our inheritance. That is an inheritance. But for us to understand that, we have to understand that it cannot come by lowering all of what God promises into something that is more relatable. It's doable. It doesn't come that way. That is not Christianity. I'm sorry. It's an influence of Christianity, but it's not Christianity. Amen? I remember one, t- one time, we were having a, something like the Easter service. And I was new in ministry. I was very new in ministry. And uh, everybody is talking about supernatural things happening. And uh, we had invited an evangelist whose ministry was filled with miracles to come and preach. And we had a crowd of thousands uh, come. And I was struggling because of the, because of the fact that I didn't want to go on stage because what he wanted is for all of us pastors to go up on stage and start praying for people in a healing line. I thought, you know what? May I just not do that? I don't want to be seen by 3,000 people 
as praying and nothing happening. <laughs> I wanted to believe. I wanted so much to believe. I wanted so much to believe. But all I could feel was fear and embarrassment that I couldn't believe that healing could, t- could take place. And I knew that was an infinite difference between my faith and the faith I needed. The thing about it is I couldn't make myself believe. I just couldn't do that. All I could do was to tell God, please either get me out of this or give me faith. And so it went on for days and days and days. I was the most miserable of all the full-time workers who were there in training. And the day came. Everybody was excited, and I was just completely depressed about the whole thing. But my pastor told me, Michael, this is where you have to know whether God is faithful or not. I'm not going to do anything to help you. You're just going to have to wait upon God. I said, see, when you get anxious, you start saying, how do you wait upon God? What do you do? What do you, you know? And my pastor just said, you just do it. It was totally not helpful. And he said, but make sure by the time you're praying for people, there's the power of God flowing through you. I felt worse after talking about it. So I was driven to, back to God. So I waited on God and waited on God, waited on God. And I didn't know what else to do. Somewhere along the line, I decided, okay, I'm going to believe whatever you tell me. I'm going to take whatever you... You tell me, and I'll try to believe it. I'll just wrap it up. And God gave me a word about healing. And He says, He heals all your diseases. In Psalm 103, He heals all your diseases. And so I said, okay, if you say so, it's going to be true. I still don't believe it. I receive it, but I don't believe it. Have you ever done that? You receive it, but you don't believe it. Because <laughs> you doubt it. So I did. So I just stayed before God. And gave him the time. In Isaiah chapter 40, it says, When you wait upon the Lord, you'll renew your strength, you'll mount up with wings as eagles. Something will happen. And it says, actually, the best translation is, He will change your strength, He'll change it qualitatively. I waited. The day came. Somewhere in the morning, the, the, the meeting was at night, and somewhere in the morning, <coughs> I was praying, and at a certain point, I felt I could believe it. I don't know how I got to believe it. When I started thinking about it too much, it bundled me out of faith. It took me out of it. I I lost my faith. But then I just received the fact that God is going to do it. I said, I don't understand how it's going to happen, but I know that I'm going to step out whatever you want me to do. The meeting came. There were about 3,000 people there. And we, pastors, you've got to know, we were all like 22 years old, right? I was one of the older ones. There were some who were 20, 19 years old. They are pastors already. And we were sitting on the stage, and I wish I would, we didn't sit on the stage. That was the culture that we had. All the pastors sit on the stage. Made me feel very, very un- uncomfortable. And then the, the evangelist said, all those who need prayer, come to the front. 
I said, okay. If I'm going to be a fool for, for your sake, I'll just go ahead and fool it for you. And a man came up. He came up to me, and he was, he was brought by his daughters and his wife. And they were basically carrying him. Okay, They had put him on a sort of a, a, a wheelchair and brought him up. I saw him, and I acted in a way that was completely uncharacteristic of me. I went there. I just pulled him out of the chair. Pull! And he started walking. He had a metal uh, thing on his back because he had uh, broken his back. And he was in pain. And I did not know that when he was on the balcony, he was lying down on the ground. He was not sitting, he was lying down. Something took over. Something took over me. I just grabbed him and he walked. After that, all faith left. I went after him, are you all right? Suddenly my knees went really, really wobbly. The faith of God is not my faith. It's God's faith. If I wait upon Him and I wait on His mercy, He will give it to me. And then sometimes He takes it back. So after that, immediately, it was a few minutes after that, I said, what have I done? I went down there like that. I wanted to vomit because I thought I had done something that was, that was abusive to him. You know, he became a pastor of my church. It's amazing. And he told me that night when you pull, pull, pull me out of the chair, somehow I had the faith for that few seconds to just get out of the chair and walk. I had been in pain all through the meeting. But when I got, walked, the pain left and he has never come back to me anymore. This is amazing. Have the faith of God means there is no way we can actually build up our thought about it. It is functioning in a different realm. And I want to put it to you that actually when Jesus said, said, said to them, have the faith of God, he means that actually be comfortable with the fact that you have doubts. It's okay. Doubts are not the opposite of faith, correct? What we do is that we put ourselves towards God and we say, God, you take over because I can't do this. The reason why I always close my eyes when I pray for people is because I don't want to see what's happening. Because if I see uh, there's too much data, the data will, 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 will trouble me. It is okay to have doubts. Even now, even while I'm speaking, it's okay to have doubt. But what we can do is that by an act of the will, we'll say, I'm going to trust myself to you and trust myself to you and do whatever you ask me to do. In the meantime, I'm just going to wait upon you. Amen? And that's how we can actually start setting our hearts out towards people who, are needs, who have needs. I don't want to hear people in BCF saying, oh, that's too overwhelming. That's too overwhelming. We can't, God can't do anything. We just stay away from that. We can pray. Amen? Because we don't allow God to be limited by us. 
Because if we allow God to be limited by our, what, we, what we feel about it or what, God, what we think God can do or what the chances are or what the pl- plausibility of things happening right, God will be completely held to ransom to us. What we say is this, I open my mouth wide. Yes, I have doubts, yes. But anyway, I have doubts in myself. Lord, you do the rest. Amen? Go and find people in, in your workplace or people who you love who you really care enough about to say, I want to entrust you to God. I want to bring you to Easter. I want to entrust you to God. God has to do something and it's not going to be upon me. Amen? I'm not going to heal you. I'm not going to make you safe. I'm not going to deliver you. I'm going to just entrust you to God. But I'm willing for God to use me if He wants me to, to be used in that way. Amen? So when Jesus is saying, have the faith of God, He's asking that we open ourselves, put ourselves in a position where God has to come through. These signs will follow them that believe. You will heal the sick, lay hands on the sick, they will be recovered. Amen? Let's pray. It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be a jolly sight harder for a bird to learn to fly while remaining an egg. Most people are satisfied with painting eggs and making beautiful little eggs and fixating on the eggs during Easter. I want to put it to you that eggs are great. Paint paint, Paint as many eggs as you want. But eggs are not what it's all about. It's the resurrection of Jesus. Amen? Don't fix, don't stay and remain in the things that you can already do. That is not Christianity in essence. Christianity is from the roots up what you can't do, but what God can do. If there's anyone who's heard the Lord speak and you're saying, yes, Lord, I don't have anything that I can fix in my life. I have no power to fix my unbelief, my doubts. But I want to give you a chance. I want to be in the zone where people need you and you need to turn up and show up. Hallelujah. Bless your name. If God's been speaking to you, as all eyes are closed, all heads are bowed, just open your hands right now. Open your hands to Him. Just say, Lord, I don't want this leafy Christianity full of leaves, 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 with no fruit. I want real things to happen. And so, Lord, we welcome you. We thank you, Lord. Show us something this week. Lead us in the path this week, Lord. We come before you and we say, Lord, we turn all the pressure off ourselves onto you. In Jesus' name, amen.